Or maybe I should say, Feliz Dia de los Tamales. Can I get an amen to that one? Yeah. You know, there are actually people in the United States who don't have the opportunity to eat tamales during Christmas. It is very sad. But we have been so blessed with an abundance of tamales here on the border region. Um, There's also a thing that we have abundance of, which is we see these nativity scenes everywhere. We see lots of nativity scenes everywhere. We see them in our houses. We see them in people's yards. We see them everywhere. Last week, I even saw one um, in somebody's car on their dashboard. They had the whole nativity scene right there on the dashboard. And either that is something that would be incredibly, um, incredibly, incredibly distracting or so commonplace that you could just keep driving along your way. And I, and I think that's kind of what the nativity scene in Christmas has become. It's just something that's so distracting, I mean, so commonplace, that we don't even notice it anymore. We kind of have this very sanitized view of the manger. We sing, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head, the stars in the sky look down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay, the cattle are lowing, the baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? Little Lord Jesus didn't cry? After he, after he was woken up by the donkeys screeching and the cows lowing and everything, he didn't cry? I don't know about that. We, we have a very sanitized view of this manger scene. And we make these wonderful Christmas plays, which are great. One day my daughter will want to be a sheep in the Christmas play. But in these plays, we have these angels that are covered in glitter and shepherds that are cute little children. And when in, in fact, these angels are these fearsome warriors and the shepherds would have stunk. You see, the scene has become so commonplace to us. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to look back at seeing how the stage is being set. And then we're going to look at the actors, particularly those who have speaking parts. And then we're going to look at the scene and see where the scene focuses. So that hopefully we may again have a wonder about this Jesus who came into our world, who is the Savior. And so let us pray. Father, you have spoken and life came into existence. You speak life into our very hearts. And so now, Lord, speak to us, we ask. Enable us to worship you because of you who have sent us your Son. We pray this and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at, at how the stage of the nativity story is set, it begins with the decree of a, of a man. It says in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. See, these three verses, in a way, are a painful reminder to all of the Jews of Caesar's strength. See, when a pagan man in Italy flexes his muscles, 
poor peasants all across uh, the far reaches of the empire are moved. It's directly felt 4,000 miles away when Caesar makes a decree from Italy. Imagine that 2,000 years ago when there was no internet, there was no phone, there was no Morse code, there was no Pony Express, none of that. Think about how incredible it was that a man 4,000 miles away could just make a decree and it would inconvenience poor little peasants in little Nazareth. You see, the, the power decree is something incredible that Caesar has here. Simply, it's that Caesar speaks something. He speaks a decree to register all people, and it happens. To some extent, this is something that is God-given, that we have as humans as well, the, about, the ability to speak, that, to speak and make things happen. It's part of being made in God's image. Um, a couple weeks ago, or last week, I did a wedding. And one of my favorite parts of the wedding is the end where you do the pronouncement as the pastor. You say, I now pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And all of a sudden, the covenant comes into existence. You spoke it into existence. It's probably one of the only times that a pastor's words are actually really, truly effective. <laughs> or another example of a decree is when your wife tells you to, make, to grow a beard, and it happens. <laughs> That's the power to decree. And, and in a much more significant sense, this is what Caesar has here, is this power to decree, to say something, and it happens. But we also obviously see then that this power to decree can become very scary. There's a scariness to this godlike power of decree. It seems often that when these leaders get more and more of this power to decree, they forget that this power comes from God. And to look at this context of this guy named Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned from the year 31 BC to 14 AD. So right in the middle of the time when Jesus was born. And he became the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Before that, it was a republic. And it had been ruled by a senate. But eventually, the emperor came in and he became the sole ruler of the Galactic Empire. It's kind of interesting. The, star, the story of Star Wars is surprisingly similar to the history of the Roman Empire. But see, so what happened was, this guy Caesar became the sole ruler of all of Rome. Became the most powerful man on the planet. And then in the year 27 BC, he was given the name, this guy Caesar was given the name Augustus when he set up this puppet senate, uh, uh, not a real senate, and he was given the title Augustus, which means revered one. It was a title being appropriate for a god or a man, either one. And then a few years later, he was given the title chief priesthood. And from this moment on, there became the cult, the imperial cult. And in the imperial cult, what happened basically was the direct worship of the emperor by sacrifices um, in the context of priesthoods, temples, rites, and festivals. So see, we have this Caesar who is given this title, the chief of the priests. And what that means is that he's worshipped as though he were God himself. It is this Caesar who makes this decree. So 
So in this context, we have the most powerful human being ever on the planet who allows himself to be worshipped as though he were God. And he speaks an order, and it forces two peasants on the outer rim of the empire to make a long journey. See, there's a sense of vulnerability and powerlessness that Mary and Joseph have. Perhaps this anxiety-inducing powerlessness that Joseph and Mary have is magnified by the fact that the the decree comes from this man, Caesar Augustus, who does not fear God, and makes this decree at the most inconvenient time for Mary, when she's about to give birth. And yet, even though there's a decree of this man, perhaps there's a little bit of comfort as well. Because in this decree, we also actually see the very decree of God himself. You see, verse 4, it says uh, that Joseph needed to go back to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So he had to go back to Bethlehem because, one, that's where he came from. he He had to go there to be registered. But second, and most importantly... This is God saying he has to go back there. See, the Old Testament is abundantly clear that God's plan is that the Savior would be born in the town of Bethlehem. That the Messiah had to be born in the city of David, from the line of David. A new David, the archetypal leader of Israel. As Micah chapter 5, verse 2 puts it, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth, come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from all old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. You see, he had to go back to Bethlehem, one, because Caesar told him to, but second, more importantly, it was God's decree that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. So even though Luke is signaling here that Caesar is flexing his muscles and making a decree, he is simply a tool of God to fulfill his plan that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And so in a a very basic sense, what Luke is implicitly getting at here is that we see that the decree of God is above the decree of man. The decree of God himself is always above the decree of man. Ephesians 1 verses 11 and 12 make this more clear. It says, We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. See, this is God's decree that it's His purpose according to His will, according to His own glory. This is the decree of God. And we see in this very, these few, first few verses that when Joseph has to go to Bethlehem, yes, it is the decree of a man who makes them get there. But most of all, it is the decree of God above the decree of man. So what this should be for us is in some ways an encouragement to always remember the decree of God. That His decree is above ours. 
And so we can trust Him in the strange decrees that He makes and the strange things that happen and the inconveniences that He is working so that your whole life, my whole life, might be a praise to His glory. Just as it was here for Mary and Joseph. This is the truth for you and I who have hoped in Jesus. But I also think that some of this, there's another implication. Which is that when men command things that are so contrary to the decrees of God, thinking of His Ten Commandments even, and they forget their place as creatures, this is a place for us to always remember that the decrees of God are higher than than the decrees of mortal men. Because God is the one whose sovereign decree is above. And so with the stage being set according to the decree of the eternal God, it's somewhat surprising that this high and big and sovereign God, who it's interesting who he chooses as his supporting cast. In some ways, we understand the angels. They make sense because angels are these powerful army warriors. But shepherds, lowly shepherds, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. See, when we go to the Christmas play, there's lots of parts. There's the angels, there's the shepherds, there's Mary and Joseph, there's Jesus, who obviously is the main character, even though he doesn't speak in this part. There's the three wise men who are not in this account. And the main characters who have speaking parts are the angels and the shepherds. These are the two people who speak, the two character parts. Now, I remember when I was doing the plays as a kid, none of the guys, none of us boys wanted to be the angels. See, only the girls wanted to be the angels and dress up as them because they always wore sparkles and glitter. And so they were really cute little angels. But if you look at the reality of what the angels are in verse 9 and 10, an angel appears to the shepherd. It's just one angel. And the shepherds are terrified. This is why the angel has to say, fear not. Because the natural inclination is when we would see an angel would be to be afraid. And then again, in a, a, heaven, a whole host of the angels then appears to these shepherds in verse 13. It says, and there were with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. You see the, uh, the language of the multitude of a heavenly host? This is the host, this is an army. This is the way the Old Testament is talking about. These angels, it's an army of angels. And if you look at Genesis 3, it says that there was a cherubim who was guarding uh, the Garden of Eden with what? A flaming sword which is another way of describing a lightsaber. So these are... Think, just, I mean, to get away from the glitter image, think about angels carrying lightsabers around or flaming swords. It's just a scary image, is the point. It's a fearsome one. And it says, the, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And their response... Their response is not like in Nacho Libre, if you've seen that movie where Nacho is talking to his friend and he says, don't you want a taste of the glory? Just a taste of it. And the answer is no. Because if you had a taste of the glory, 
you would fall down on your face in fear. Because this is what uh, the natural inclination is. This is what Isaiah does when he encounters the train of God's glory and the cherubim are there. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. We would fall flat on our face. And this is why the angel has to say here, do not fear. Because I bring to you a news of great joy. And so they bring a message of great joy, of great hope, of great peace. See, they are the joyful messengers of the Savior. They say in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in verse 14, all the angels proclaim together, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see, they are the joyful messengers of a coming Savior. This Savior is Christ the Lord. He is the one who would come to deliver His people from their sin and from their slavery and bring them peace. He is the one who would bring peace to those with whom God is pleased. This is saying that it is entirely dependent on God's good pleasure, not on human ability. That this message is a matter of God's mere pleasure. It is all of His grace. That it is nothing that any of us can earn or merit. And that He is pleased with us because it is His own mere pleasure. Not because of anything within us. And this is a message that they proclaim that is peace for all the people. That this news is to be broadcast to all the ends of the world. To all people. As Ephesians 2, 13 and 17 says, But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. And so we sing, you know, these songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sin is reconciled. And sometimes we can get a little bit confused and say, peace on earth, there's not, what, what peace on earth are we talking about? Peace, right. It's not necessarily saying no more wars or world conflicts, but this peace is a peace among those with whom he is well pleased. This is a peace amongst Christians. This is a peace with God that he is bringing. As the song continues, peace on earth and mercy mount, God and sinners reconciled. It's a peace that brings Jews and Gentiles far, near and far to Christ. It is a message that brings the spiritually clean and the spiritually unclean to Jesus. It is a message that brings the rich and the poor. And this is why the shepherds are proof that the message is for all the people. Because although they were Jews and they were physically near to the birth of Jesus, they were spiritually far off. They are evidence itself that the Savior would be for all people. 
the lowly and the spiritually far off. And so you look at the shepherds. And the shepherds, they would have lived in fields with the flocks, and they would have been physically dirty. They were poor. Aristotle, one of the a Greek philosophers, called them lazy common laborers. That's what the Greeks thought of shepherds. They were often left out of the temple and the spiritual life of Israel and were therefore unclean and sinful or spiritually distant from God. Even though at the same time they raised the flocks that would be used for the temple sacrifices. And so in a sense, you see the shepherds. Do you see who these shepherds are? They were the far off people. They were the materially poor. They were the marginalized in society. And they were the spiritually distant sinners from God. This is who they were. And yet they were the first recipients of the good news. Of all the people in Bethlehem and Jerusalem, they were told first. The outsiders, the spiritual outsiders were told first. And the Gospel of Luke is constantly pointing that Jesus came to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. Those who were not self-important about their religion. Those who were not self-righteous, but recognized their need for the Savior. And the narrative high point in the book of Luke is in Luke 19, when a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus is saved. A rich, rich man, but who is completely lost, is saved. He is one of the spiritual outsiders. It's those who are the outside that we see receiving the message first. And so there's a, there's a danger, I think, for us. Sometimes when we assume we are part of the spiritual insiders, that we are the good religious people that even came to church on Christmas Eve. The response that we should have is rather to consider our sin and recognize how desperately we need this Jesus. Like Paul, who was at one point a religious insider in the religious system, but he was absolutely distant from God. And you and I must come to say with him, as he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is who Jesus came for. And this is the first people who were given the proclamation of this good news. But also, what's interesting about these shepherds is that they also become the first proclaimers of this good news. Look at verse 17. It says, And when they came, they came to Bethlehem, they check out what they've been told. And they see it. And then verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds had told them. In verse 20, And then the shepherds returned to their places, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. See, they make known what they had been told. 
And then they saw Jesus. And when they left, they went proclaiming, glorifying God for everything that they had seen and everything that they had heard. This is all that the Lord asks of us here, like these shepherds. As lowly as they were, is that we can go and share the joy of what we have seen and what we have heard. The shepherds, they didn't have seminary education. They didn't, but they didn't also say heretical things like Jesus was some kind of cyborg or something. They just said what they had seen and heard, that Jesus came to be the Savior. They shared what they had seen and heard. And this is what God asks of us. As lowly and uneducated as the shepherds were, and as far on the outside as they had been, they become the first proclaimers of this gospel. And so we can do the same thing. I do Youth for Christ at Austin High School. And um, there's this one particular student who has uh, special needs who comes every week. And sometimes, you know, he'll blurt out when I'm speaking and kind of messes up some of my mojo of what I'm saying. And he does it a lot. And But you know what? When he shares, he shares the most deeply from his heart with a disarming, piercing genuineness about his love for Jesus. And his testimony is far more powerful than anything I ever say. Because he is just like these shepherds. And they become the first proclaimers of this great gospel of Jesus who came to be the Savior. And so it's interesting that the use of these shepherds in this scene, it actually fits with the scene in which God is going to act. Isn't that interesting? The use of shepherds fits the scene in which God is about to act. Because look at the scene. If we look at the scene, at the nativity scene, the manger becomes the focal point. The feeding trough becomes the focal point of the nativity story, of the scene. Look at verse 7. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And then the angels announce what has just happened and they say, and this is the sign for you in verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then The shepherds go, and they go and see it, and it says, Luke reports, and behold, and they saw the baby lying in a manger. You see how the scene keeps drawing our attention to the fact that this Jesus was lying in a manger. You realize that a manger is just an animal feeding trough. Think about it the little Lord Jesus had his head resting where the animals have just been eating. Does that 
bring awe to you? That Christ, the King of the universe, the royal Davidic King, was placed in a feeding trough. That the eternal Son of God, who spoke creation into existence by the very word of His power, became a baby boy who could not speak, but could only cry for the milk that he needed to survive. That the one who ruled from the throne of glory was placed in a humble animal feeding trough. That this one who makes emperors do his bidding became submissive to parents who were nothing but poor peasants from nowhere. See, the manger scene is about how this powerful God becomes weak. How the secure God becomes vulnerable. How the God who is honored above all is brought down to the lowest and most humiliating of places. The wonder of it. This all-powerful God who decrees and emperors obey relates to our experience. That's what the manger tells us in a way. Manuel and I were talking about this humiliation of Jesus by coming to the manger and he gave me this quote from Friedrich Buechner and he says this, Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least of all places of events, the birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. You see, does not this Jesus, God in the flesh, does He not understand humiliation and vulnerability? Does He not understand these experiences? And we understand vulnerability. Our lives are so much more vulnerable than we want to admit. So many things from our health to our jobs, to our children, to our safety are not really in our control. But Jesus understands weakness and vulnerability in the feeding trough. And the humiliation and shame that we sometimes have there are all things that we have that about each of us that we hide that are far more shameful and humiliating than we want to acknowledge and there is sin. But Christ understood humiliation and shame. Think about His experience. That the heights that He came from to the depths that He went are more glorious and more humiliating than you and I will ever experience. He has felt vulnerability and humiliation much more than you and I ever will. Because think about 
the ultimate scene of powerlessness, of vulnerability and humiliation. The ultimate scene, that of the cross. You see, the beginning of Jesus' life, it only points to the end of his life. The manger is meant, in all of its humiliation and powerlessness, is meant to guide us to the cross. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate scene of humiliation and shame. Because it is there where He gathered all of our sin and He took it upon Himself. It is there where He is covered in all of your shame. And He hung there, exposed and naked and ashamed, bearing all the weight of our sin. And they scoffed at Him and they rebuked Him. And they said, if you really are the King, save yourself. In absolute humiliation, he succumbed powerless to the feeding trough of death. But oh, do you see in that great infinite plan of God who works all things according to his counsel of his will, the humiliation of Jesus in the feeding trough and on the cross led to his exaltation. Consider in Philippians 2, this Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And because of that, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. See, in the manger scene, Jesus is preparing to go down to the depths of humiliation to pay for our sin. And this is why the manger scene always points us to the cross. And so we can sing and we can rejoice. Christ the babe was born for you. And we know it because Christ the man died for you. And this is what the manger scene points us to. The trough points us to the cross. And they tell us how Jesus is the Savior of our sins. Let us pray. Lord, in your eternal decree, you plan for Jesus to save us by taking our humanity and going to the greatest depths of our sin and our misery so that in Jesus we might be forgiven. Make us joyful messengers of this gospel, O Lord. May we see it, may we hear it, and may we share that Christ the babe was born for us. Amen.